The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light on our path. As we listen to it, as we reflect on it, as it encounters us, open our hearts and our minds this day that we may respond to what you are saying to us with joy. This we pray in the name of the risen one, Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My friends, this is the third Sunday of Easter. Christians call the seven weeks that follow the great celebration of the resurrection, Easter Tide. And in this season, we remind each other over and over that Christ is risen. We bring all those alleluias that we left behind during the season of Lent back into the service. In fact, at times, I've challenged the youth who are bored with everything else going on in the service to count. Yes, I'm looking at you. Um, to count all the alleluias that occur in the bulletin and in the hymns. And so if that happens today, go ahead, avail yourself. Um, it'll be a prize if you get it right. We also contemplate during this season the meaning of Christ's resurrection for our lives and our faith. In today's scripture reading from the Gospel of John, we encounter a classic post-Easter story. It starts early one morning when our risen Lord appears on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And standing there, just like old times, Jesus dispenses fishing advice to the disciples. He cooks breakfast for them, and then he turns to address his friend Peter, a man who spent the last few days denying that he had any connection to Christ. Three times Peter denied his Lord, and now he's sitting next to Jesus on the beach. It's an awkward moment, but an important one for them and for us. Listen now for God's word as it comes to us this morning from John chapter 23, beginning with the 15th verse. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, 
feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. So the apostle Peter had a bad week, really bad. First, Peter fell asleep. In the garden of Gethsemane, he fell asleep. It had been a long day, but it wasn't any old night. Jesus asked him to stay awake, and still Peter nods off. And when Christ notices and prods his snoring wingmen, we hear the hurt. On this night, this soul-searching, desolate night, you can't keep me company. Peter knows he's messed up. Then, as he blinks the sleep from his eyes, Judas and his thugs show up. They've come for Jesus. Compensating for his untimely nap, Peter springs into action. You want to address, you want to arrest the Messiah? You and what army? And pulling a knife, Peter swings at the nearest soldier. He slices the guy's ear off. Again, Christ shakes his head. No, Peter. Put your sword away. Would you prevent me from doing what God has called me to do? Finally, infamously, Peter denies Jesus. In the hours leading up to Christ's crucifixion, Peter is given three chances to stand up for his friend, his teacher, his Lord. Three chances to swing at an easy pitch, and the poor frightened fellow can't even get the bat off his shoulder. In the end, Peter stands by a fire in an adjacent courtyard. Jesus is being roughed up, staring at the embers. The disciple wonders, how could everything go so wrong? And at that moment, a passerby calls out, hey, I know you. You're the fellow who sliced off Tommy's ear. You're a follower of that Jesus. Me? Bluffs Peter, connected to that guy? No way, never, you are mistaken. As these words leave Peter's lips, they stick to his soul. They haunt him. Peter's mistakes begin to define the man that he sees in the mirror. I know you, you, you're the watchman who falls Asleep at his post, you're the, you're the chest thumper who turns out to be spineless. You, you, you're the kind of fellow who would deny his best friend. Peter's blunders play in his head in an endless mental loop, one shameful moment after another. I'm such a screw-up, such an awful friend, such a failure. Is he right? Is that who Peter really is? Some of you know that I am a fan of television cooking shows, and my latest obsession is the Great British Bake Off. Uh, hey, some other fans out there. 
A BBC production, The Bake Off, is a reality program that pits aspiring British bakers against each other in a series of culinary challenges. And like most reality shows, the conclusion of each hour-long episode involves one of the co contestants getting voted off the program. Week after week, two respected judges narrow the field until only the battle-tested champion of British baking remains. Now, what sort of things will get you voted off the show? Well, you could overbake your cake. You could underproof your dough. You could get messy with your chocolate work. You could have bland flavors. Any error can result in a contestant being told, I'm afraid it's time for you to go. Now, at the Black Johnston household, we enjoy speculating about who is going to be asked to leave as the program plays out. Will it be Ruby, whose, whose scones were a mess? Will it be Raul, whose cake had a decided tilt to it? We, we watch for scowling judges, for melting icing, for any mistake that indicates clearly this baker has got to go. And when you make the right call as a viewer, it's sort of satisfying. You know, you feel smug about your predictive abilities. I saw it coming. That guy had failure written all over him. After all, he scorched the sweet buns. It turns out I'm a pretty savvy critic of televised baking. At least that's the way I felt right up until I read a fascinating article by pop culture critic Colson Whitehead. Writing for the New York Times, Whitehead pulls back the curtain on a television production technique that's, that's so doggone obvious I can't believe I fell for it. Reality shows, Whitehead argues, work best when they incite a state of righteous judgment in viewers. And they accomplish this through what industry insiders call the loser edit. A loser edit works like this. When a character is about to get a heave-ho, the director goes back through all the footage that she's got at her disposal and stitches together a coherent story explaining the person's departure. So that over the course of the hour-long show, the director is sprinkling in scenes that put the soon-to-be-gone person's flaws on display. According to Colson, anyone tuning in, even for the first time, catches on quickly. The loser edit is not just the narrative arc of a contestant about to be chopped or, or, or voted off the island or whatever the catchphrase. It is the plausible argument that this person is a failure. In other words, so-called reality television is deliberately trying to bring us to a point where we will blurt out, I saw it coming. That guy has failure written all over him. Our world is really good at whipping up loser edits. Politicians and pundits love loser edits. Let me hang a few ill-advised quotes around this candidate's neck 
snip, snip, splice, splice, there you go. Now do you see who he is, who he really is? Loser edits can confirm our prejudices. Let me cite a few facts and figures about these people, this ethnicity, this subset of our population. Snip, snip, splice, splice. There you go. Now do you understand who these people are? Now do you see the dangers that they represent? We cobble together loser edits at work, too. Oh, that Archie. Don't get me started. First, he messed up the commodities presentation. Then he sent that stupid email around. Last week, he quoted the, the wrong numbers to accounting. Kvetching at the local watering hole with, with barely restrained glee, we screen and rescreen the film of, of Archie's fumbles and flaws. Snip, snip, splice, splice. We're smart. We know who Archie is, really is. We even apply loser edits to ourselves. We piece together mental videos a montage of our mistakes and missteps. Why, why did I say that? How could I have done that? How did I end up with, with, with this, this, this failure of a me? Been there? Done that? Our friend, the disciple Peter, owns the t-shirt. In today's text, we find the disciple on a beach, hanging out next to a fire. The, the last time Peter was warming himself over burning coals, he denied knowing Jesus. Big deal, right? So he denied Jesus. We, we do it all the time. There are, there are worse crimes, except, except for Peter renouncing Jesus called into question everything he wanted to believe about himself. I denied knowing the man who gave my life purpose and meaning and joy. What does that say about me? Am I the sort of guy when faced by trouble who abandons his friends? Did I, did I just kick everything that I hold precious into the gutter? Is that the kind of man that I am? It may be the season of Easter, but the stories the church serves up are not focused on marshmallow chicks. Shame and guilt chase each other around through Peter's head. You can see it, can't you? There on the beach, Peter is strangely quiet. He knows what's coming. The cold shoulder, a reprimand, final confirmation that he is a loser, a, a bundle of, of selfish choices and bad decisions. Peter flinches, you, you know he does, when Christ sets down his plate of fish and asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? There's a lot at stake in that poignant question. Right out of the gate, Jesus throws the the fisherman off, off balance. He addresses Peter as, as Simon. 
Simon. Why Simon? After all, Jesus famously told the man, I'm no longer going to call you Simon. From now on, I will call you Peter, Petros, the rock. You are the granite on which I will build my community, my, my church. That's what Jesus promised. So why does our Lord revert to Simon? Is it a not-so-subtle dig? On further reflection, it turns out you're not a rock. All those denials, I get the picture. Now I see who you really are. Snip, snip, splice, splice. Is that what Jesus is doing? Has he just told us that Peter is a loser? To answer, I think we need to look at our context. Today's story places us on the beach, and not, not just any beach. The gospel has tugged us back to the shores of Galilee, back to the boats and the nets, back to the very spot the fishermen first met Jesus. Uh, the scene seems familiar, and that's the point. When, when Jesus says, Simon, he hits the reset button in a way. He takes takes Peter all the way back to the beginning. He, he invites the disciple to recall the initial crazy, uh, am I really doing this impulse that had him drop his nets and go tramping off after Jesus in the first place. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Doesn't it always come back to love with Jesus? Love glued the disciples and Jesus together in the first place. Love is what they preach and teach and share on the road. And after all seems lost on Good Friday, it's some kind of wild, magical love that draws them all back together again. Yes, Lord, Peter gasps, desperate for the chance. You know I love you. Okay, then, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asks about love. Three times Peter responds, yes, Lord. Three times Christ encourages him to feed the sheep. Why the repetition? Some say Jesus wants to give Peter three chances to profess his love to offset the three denials that he spoke on Good Friday. I guess that works. But I wonder if something more basic is going on here. I wonder if Jesus uses repetition, like a parent uses repetition, to drum something crucial into Peter's head, and by extension, into the heads and hearts of the church. I wonder if Jesus is saying, you are not the sum of your mistakes. Your identity is grounded in my love for you and your love for me. And as you get confident in that love, as you lean into that love, I have a task for you. Take care of my vulnerable lambs. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each time Peter answers, he, he confirms his truest self, his best heart, his sacred sense of purpose. 
each time Peter answers, the narrative begins to change. The, the loser edit in his head fades. Each answer grounds Peter more and more in God's story. Jesus loves me. I love him back. I want to share that love. There's a new public grade school in Akron, Ohio. It's been operating for less than a year, about nine months. Right now, the school is focused on third and fourth graders. It has plans to expand over time. It is called the I Promise School. And I Promise is a unique place. You can get a sense of its special nature watching children enter its halls on Monday morning or, or any other day of the school week. As teachers and administrators line the entrances and Sister Sledge's We Are Family blares from the intercom speakers, the children are showered with high fives and hugs. Now, if you were to take a peek at the demographic figures describing the student body being showered with all this affection, you would learn that last year, all of the children at I Promise were attending other Akron schools, and they were all performing in the lowest 25% of their classes. You would learn that many of them were diagnosed with behavioral issues. And you would learn that 75% of the kids at this school come from low-income families, and most of them head directly from those high fives and hugs to grab a free breakfast before classes start. And here's the thing. I promise requested these kids. It asked for these kids. Well, one Akron educator remarks that the new school basically said, give us your irredeemable students and the district obliged. But instead of calling them irredeemable, I promise calls these kids the chosen ones. While I Promise is a public school funded by Akron tax dollars, it also has outside support. It receives additional funds from the LeBron James Family Foundation. And among other things, these funds allow I Promise to add an hour to the end of every school day. The extra time is devoted to classes on conflict management for these third and fourth graders and other emotional skills. And the extra hour also allows the school to provide time for parents to take classes on everything from family finance to parenting. About 20% of I Promise's budget comes from outside funding. But it has a lot more than funding going for it. It doesn't take money says Ms. Brandy Davis, the school's veteran principal, to teach students how to love. In the last year, these beloved students have shown steady progress. 90% of the 
of the students at I Promise have met or exceeded individual growth goals in reading and math over the last nine months. So here's my question. Do we really know who the losers are? Is there really such a thing as an irredeemable grade school kid? Can hugs and high fives make you better at math? Can conflict resolution and love turn a story around? Turn a life around? My guess is that the Apostle Peter would say, yes. Do you love me? Jesus asks. Snip, snip. Splice, splice. Feed my lambs. My friends, the risen Christ redeems our past failures. Reminds us of our capacity for love. And puts us to work. The risen Christ calls us to remember all those in our lives and in our society who have been subject to the loser edit, who have been told that they are irredeemable. And then the risen Christ invites us to start singing with Sister Sledge, We are family. I got all my sisters with me. The risen Christ has the same question for us all. Do you love me? Go from this place trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to each other in the power of the Holy Spirit. Alleluia. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.